Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles as we return again to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. An indescribable joy to be back again in this book, in this letter from Paul. And just by way of refreshment, of renewing our minds, reminder, I want to back up to the beginning of this paragraph that we started several months ago in verse 8. And we're going to read all the way through to verse 15. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 8, the word of the Lord says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And for today's study, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Holy Father, O Lord, how much we need your help, your grace, your spirit this day. Lord, not just in understanding the richness of what you have inspired through the Apostle Paul, and the depth of meaning of all that you have accomplished. But Father, the help of your Spirit to bring these truths to a reality in our lives, in our thinking, Lord, in every desire that we have, in our emotions, in our relationships, in our pursuits, Lord, in every facet of our life, I pray that the reality of all that has been accomplished by you through your Son would be made alive and quickened and renewed and refreshed within the depths of our souls so that we, Father, may be transformed into the likeness of your very Son. And, O Lord, to know the depth and the riches, the height, the width, the length, the breadth of your love toward us as a father. But, O Lord, to know and truly what it is to delight in your Son, to enjoy him more than anything 
this world could offer more than anything that our flesh can present, more than anything that the great deceiver and the ridiculer of the saints of God can tempt us with. Lord Jesus, be magnified this day. Holy Father, by your power and work, make these truths a reality to us. And Lord, help me by your Spirit to clearly explain and teach what you are saying to us. To the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Praise God. You may be seated. Just reading, continuing to read through this paragraph, verses 8 to 15, and meditating on it, preparing for this study, came across some, actually not real ancient, but older articles. And reading through these, it it just kind of hit me that in today's world, and, and probably more so than I can remember in my times past, but today there's, there's an ever-increasing ever increasing danger in our thinking that our society has somehow come close to arrival or has finally arrived, a thinking that we have become so developed, we have somehow evolved so much that through the great works of man, we are now so, whether technologically or socially, or financially, or even religiously astute, that we actually exude what one author calls the chronological snobbery. Some of you may have read read that article I'm talking about. That our age is now the one that the world has so been long waiting for, and there's no longer any need to look to God we don't really need to consider the Bible. It's been discredited. That those ancient, outdated, outdated writings are much less to trust for our very lives. You know, they're passe. Man is not satisfied in his attempts to control his destiny. No, now he's basically striving after a false but full autonomy. But the truth is, the reality is, Satan is still promoting his original lie. He hasn't changed, neither has the reality of man's sinful nature. All of mankind is born into a bondage to their sin, in their sin nature, and will continue in it, save for the elect of God. And the truth is, man is only inventing more ways to fulfill, to express the cravings of his fallen nature, and perfecting his focus away from God. And we know from, from Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes 1.9 that there's nothing new under the sun. It's the same as to today's world, as what Paul was describing in his careful warning to the church in Colossae, that the philosophy, the empty deceptions, the traditions of men, these elementary principles of the world, are all intended to elevate man to captivate the mind with worldly ideals and pursuits, to lure away through even the senses and deceptive religious trials, all away from God, even promoting some level or higher level of spirituality and what they conceived as, as true Christianity. 
to take us away, to get our minds off the person and the truth of Jesus Christ. From our last two studies in this passage, Paul began this paragraph in verse 8 with this very powerful polemic against these deceptive practices of the false teachers in Colossae. And he begins at the very highest level with the person of the Godhead who is both fully God and fully man, Christ Jesus the Lord. And with this, with him and his powerful circumcising work, his children are now made complete. We have been made complete in him. They and we are now able to become truly more fully human and perfected as in our union in the relationship we have with Christ. And remember, we looked at our union with Christ from three perspectives last time, just very briefly. First was our eternal union through God's electing prerogative and pleasure. The second was the historical union when God gave his chosen people to his son. And the third was the the mystical union that was brought through the Spirit's regenerating work. And we are brought into union with Christ through this this circumcising work of Christ. That is by being baptized, by, by being immersed into his death, in his burial and resurrection, making us uniquely personal beneficiaries benefiting from a legal and a forensic standpoint, being justified, and we benefit it virtually through the Spirit in that introductory and ongoing work of sanctification. Last week I asked a question in, in Sunday school, if you remember, does our salvation depend on our sanctification? Is there to attain some level of holiness? And my question was yes, because... Or my answer was yes, because if true salvation has occurred, then sanctification will occur. In order, in accordance with the promise that we have from Paul in Philippians 1.6 of God's continuing work that he began and perfecting that work until the day of Christ Jesus. However, if our sanctification is of our own works, if we are striving in our own fleshly efforts to strive for some morality or some conformity, then it's works-based, and it's unrighteous before God, which testifies that the circumcising work of Christ has not been administered to our lives, and there has not been a definitive break from sin into a life of holiness and a delight in Christ. Our examination point is before the cross of Christ. Where do we stand in relation to him? But the powerful result of what Paul describes as Christ's circumcising work of our sin nature, we are now moved into a new condition, a new reality of life, of eternal life that begins here and now in our relationship with God through Christ, powered by the Holy Spirit and His Word. And when we come to verse 13, we see some change in Paul's perspective. He kind of takes a different position, different perspective, if you will. It's as if he's, he's beholding the jewel of Christ and his redemptive work and all that he has done. And he turns it to look at just another facet of this doctrinal truth. Still in, in truthful, worshipful perspective, still with adulation, but with a sobriety where Paul now shows us 
the power and the mercy of God the Father to sinners and to his children. And in these next three verses, Paul, Paul's perspective, his, his focus goes from you in verses 11 and 12 and the introduction in verse 13 to now he focuses on he, him, the Father. That of the work of the Father. That the work of God. And as Paul has been focusing on the Son and his work, we're now peering into what I, I can only describe as, as the crescendo of the eternal decrees that were issued by the Father on our behalf, now being fulfilled in Christ and in his own. So I, I want us to look at these next three verses. Praise God for the order and the, the clarity of his scripture because they've, they've been beautifully laid out for us in the original text. And what I mean is, Paul uses three participial phrases here. And it's very key because they're instrumental in showing us exactly the powerful work of God in Christ on our behalf. Truly three glorious blessings to us that result from the circumcision of Christ. And they are, first, verse 13, having forgiven. Second one, verse 14, and they're coupled in a, in a sense, and we'll get to that. Having obliterated through having nailed. Okay? And the third one is having triumphed in verse 15. So we begin in verse 13. Having forgiven. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our transgressions. And in order to properly emphasize and enhance the divine quality of this new life and this gracious forgiveness of God, Paul intentionally and necessarily describes our previous state and the state of any unbeliever still outside of Christ. And that is one of death, spiritual death being spiritually dead and he says and you or or when you remembering our past condition when you were dead in your transgressions is describing here a sphere of death a realm of spiritual death and you can see this in greater detail in Ephesians 2 1 to 5 and I brought a lot of those ideas of the thinking that the instruction the reality of what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 2 into the study but just here as well, this is the present state that afflicts all humans. Everyone born this side of Adam, which everybody raise your hand, includes all of us. Everyone has been born in a state of sin. We all have that original sin nature. And this is not something trivial. Because of the full reality of our spiritual death is that it includes a physical death and all of its pain and losses. Dying physically is a horrible thing. It's a disgusting thing. And this is true even for the child of God. The liability of death has not been removed by those of faith. We will all die except the Lord return quickly, soon. But even more significant is that to be spiritually dead carries with it similar aspects of physical death. What I mean is, 
as you know, when somebody's physically dead, they have no, they're, they're not responsive to any stimuli. They, they can't feel, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't taste. And just so with those who are spiritually dead, there's no natural ability to respond to any spiritual stimuli. They're devoid of any spiritual sense. And being in the sphere of sense, they're completely unable in any power of their own to be spiritually alive or make themselves spiritually alive. Not by the will of flesh nor by the will of man, but by the power of the Holy Spirit only. Oh, you can do a lot of good things as a dead man walking. Great works, you can benefit others, be very generous, certainly learn a lot of information and facts, figures, language, even study the scriptures for a number of years and be spiritually dead, I can testify. But without the quickening of the Spirit of God, you are still apart from God and unforgiven. Spiritual death is to be locked in sin's grasp, in its grip, to be in its full dominion and control. Even though all men apart from God are sinful, does not mean that every person is equally corrupt or wicked. Sin manifests itself through many forms, many expressions, but the state of sin in man has no degrees. And though not every man is as evil as they could be, all fail to measure up to God's perfect and holy standard. And this is why Paul goes on further to address the Colossian Gentiles in reminding them that they too were dead in their sin and transgressions and the uncircumcision of their flesh, which is to speak of their state of guilt, their condition of sinfulness outside the covenant. And those Gentiles were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, meaning the Jews. They were in a condition as well of impotence and utter hopelessness without God and in the world. What a devastating predicament reality to come to realize in the soul. And so were we before Christ. Think about this. What is and has been God's standard for mankind? Matthew 5.48, very succinctly, Christ says, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God's standard and Christ's standard did not change in any way from Leviticus 11.44, all the way to 1 Peter 1.16, there has always been and always will be one standard. That is why for mankind, apart from God, cannot be anything but sinful. And because of God's holiness and his perfect standard of holiness, anyone apart from God falls so very short, so very far, in fact, that his holiness and high standard, no matter how much good any man should do, whether never having done or never going to do evil, meeting God's standard, standard is unattainable for man. But what happened? Oh, gloriously, what happened? That great conjunction. But God, but God in Ephesians 2.4, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. It is God who made us alive, who has, in a figurative way, quickened us to life. And this is accomplished 
Because, as Paul tells us, God has forgiven us all of our sins. Consider this in verse 14. Panta in the Greek. All. This is all encompassing of time, encompassing of all our sins. The believer in Christ receives a full pardon involving for us the removal of all guilt and every penalty. Does this not bring great joy to our hearts and understanding of God's blessings that we can now cry out in praise with David? How blessed is he whose transgressions, all of our sins against a high and holy God, a just God, all my sins are now forgiven. All of my sin has been covered. The scriptural truth of this is of utmost importance. And oh, what a glorious reality when it's brought to full awareness in the soul of a man who sees his sin and his plight before God. We are now brought to God through the work, the merits, the sacrifice of Christ, and the working of the Spirit. We are brought into a new condition, a new state, a new sphere of life, into a new kingdom, bringing us into fellowship with God, into communion with God himself. We truly become God's own. He is ours by nature of this communion, and our life becomes intertwined with his. Think of this. His righteousness and justice is now ours to accept us. His wisdom is now given to us to direct us and counsel us. His power is now given to preserve us. His grace is now ours to forgive and save us. His love is now ours to delight us. His faithfulness is ours to encourage us. His majesty is ours to render as glorious. His joy is ours to satisfy us. This is life. This is what it means to be fully human, to live as God intended. Consider your own life. Do you live, do we live, do I live daily in the reality of our status, our position in Christ? in communion with him, in fellowship with him? Or do we think that our position or our fellowship or our closeness with him ebbs and flows? Can we be closer to God than we are right now? Can we grow in our communion with him, considering all that he has done on our behalf in choosing, in seeking, in saving in completing the spiritual work in our hearts and now clearly stating that we are complete in him? Or should we ask the question, are we enjoying him? Are we truly delighting in him? Are we truly satisfied in our communion with God? If our status with Christ has not changed, if our condition with Christ has not changed, if everything in, if we have everything in Christ and we have been filled in him, ask ourselves, ask yourself, do we enjoy being so close to God, living in the reality of what we are in Christ in fellowship with him? 
our maturing, our growing in the knowledge and grace of Christ is a matter of being transformed, not a matter of closeness. It's a matter of the truth and person of Christ permeating, infiltrating our entire being, transforming our thinking, our thought patterns, our reasoning, searching out and examining, transforming our inmost desires, our motives, our delights, our joys into his as we walk and live by his spirit through us, in and through us. And as we strive to please the Father in the same like manner as Christ did. Now, how did the Father do this for us? How was he able to forgive us all of our sins, all of our transgressions, that amassed to such a mountainous pile of iniquity and filthiness against a holy God? How was he able to do this? This is a very challenging verse, but we come to our second point. Having obliterated, in verse 14, Paul packs 25 pounds of spiritual truth into these few words. But glorious as they are, let's read them. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. By God canceling, by annulling, by causing something to cease, to be obliterated, all the evidence against us is gone. But what did God cancel? What did he obliterate? What did he cease to exist? It was this great record of debt. It is this certificate consisting of decrees against us in all of its legal demands. But what is this? It is the Mosaic law and all of its legal and ceremonial demands that stood against us. It is the indictment against us that condemns us, demanding payment and the exercise of its power to punish us. It is a decree that exhibits and warrants our liability to punishment. For we have all violated God's holy standard, his law, And upon this certificate, upon this bond, was our own signature identifying, our identifying mark of ownership of this debt to God. But what did God do? How how did he do it? Think about this. He canceled it. He obliterated it. But he did it by having nailed it to the cross. So God, having obliterated this certificate of debt that was, was against each and every one of us, taking it out of the way. God took it out of the way for it legally stood against us, preventing us, hindering us, keeping us from fellowship with God. And history tells us that as part of the the gruesome, the shaming act of crucifixion, the Romans would place or affix on the cross or above the cross what's called a titulus. It's, It's... Basically, it's a description, a certificate of all the offenses of the criminal. And we know that from Matthew 27, 37, Pilate had a titulus placed above Christ, charging him by saying, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. But this was man's charge. This was from Pilate. 
It is God who had his own titulus nailed to the cross. Think about this. God's titulus was the law itself. The Lord Jesus, when he was nailed upon the cross at Calvary, he was nailed up as the one guilty of the law, as if he was breaking the law of God, bearing the full penalty of breaking his law, but not in himself, but it was in our place. It was only for our sin, our guilt, our condemnation that was reckoned to him upon the cross. It was only in the death of Christ and by him paying that penalty that God could cancel out. He could annul. He could obliterate the law and all of its decrees and ordinances against us. And it is Christ alone who satisfied all of the law's demands of perfect obedience. It was Christ alone who bore its curse in full for all those who had violated it in sin. And it was Christ alone who fulfilled all of the law's types and shadows, its ceremonies that were required in the law's exercise, as fallible as they were to deal with sin. So what was the result? What is the outcome of this? But that by God having nailed him to the cross, now the people of God, those that are one with Christ, receive the greatest blessing of forgiveness. God has now provided and fulfilled the very means by which he can declare the sinner justified, righteous, and forgiven. Amen? Beloved, now through Christ, we receive the fulfillment of God's very promises. This is what he says in Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. But let's look further. Let's look deeper in this forgiveness of God to us. What are its characteristics? What does it look like? Well, we heard in Sunday school, God's forgiveness, the Father's forgiveness is very gracious to us. John tells us in John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is completely unmerited, undeserved, unattainable by man. It is a glorious free gift to us. Romans 3.24 says that we are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. It's not something we can earn. It is simply and wonderfully God's gracious gift to us. It is the kindness of God our Savior. This is what Titus tells us in chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. But when the kindness of God our Savior... And his love for mankind appeared. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, according to his graciousness, by the washing and regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
A second characteristic and aspect of God's forgiveness is that it is complete. His forgiveness is, according to Paul in Ephesians 1.7, according to the riches of his grace. Not simply of his riches, but according to his riches, which means it is always bountiful, always greater than sin. Because he says later, because where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And here David's praise to God for his complete and bountiful forgiveness. Psalm 103, we read a little bit of this earlier. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your tear, your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. And thirdly, God's forgiveness is certain. A certainty that we can count on completely because it is fully founded upon God's promise. Paul says to us in Acts 26, verse 18, that as he was sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. The certainty of God's promise is only found in the gospel of Christ. Paul described God's forgiveness through the gospel. In Acts twenty six twenty five. he says it's utter words of sobering truth. And it's truly God's forgiveness is an incredible blessing and gift to cover, to forgive, to forget all of our sins. Now we come to our third participial phrase that Paul uses in showing us God's blessing by means of our union in Christ's circumcision. Having triumphed, verse 15, When he, God, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he, God, made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, Christ. It's significant here just in the text that we don't see the use of chi or and, because what we see here is at the same time that God canceled, that he obliterated the certificate of debt, the handwriting against us, he also vanquished Satan. He disarmed Satan and all of the hostile spiritual powers and forces that had reigned over man since the origination of sin. But their reign was now ended. Their dominion has now been ended. It was completely overthrown. Not just threatened, not just attacked like some battle. It was completely usurped. When sin was atoned for, their power was destroyed. And what does this look like? I know many of you are history buffs, biblical history. And we know in times of, of the Roman Empire when a great king or commander had defeated a province or even a nation or a people, he would bring his captives back and parade them in front of all the people and before Caesar before the leaders, showing them 
their bondage, that they'd been defeated and parading all the spoil that they had brought from the war, declaring defeat, declaring their rule was ended. The same thing here and also in Matthew twelve twenty nine, where Christ speaks of binding the strong man so that he can plunder his property. And this being a, a precursor into the glimpsing of this final work that, that Christ has accomplished on the cross. But even more specifically, turn over to Hebrews chapter 2 real quick. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. The pastor, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We see here that the devil held the power of death because of the sinfulness of humanity. But it was because of God's Son, God-given bond with His children, that He took on their human condition. And in and through His very dying humanity, He conquered death itself, and He destroyed the one who has the power of death. Christ's victory and the satisfaction of the Father's wrath was validated by his subsequent resurrection and exaltation. And even though we all must die physically, unless I said the Lord returns very soon, by Christ removing our sin, he has completely deprived the devil of his ability to intimidate us with death. Putting Satan and all his demonic forces to open shame and public humiliation and rendering him completely impotent through the cross by defeating sin. Glorious. So as we come to the close of this paragraph in this chapter, even though it has taken some time to work through this, let me challenge your memories and ask, What should this text and all the emphasis on the circumcision of Christ and this magnificent, triumphant work of God on our behalf to forgive us, what should this mean for us? Well, first, let me ask, what does it mean for the unbeliever? Very simply, very obvious. You must be born again. You must turn from your sin and know in your heart and your life the power of and the working of God by asking Him for it, by seeking Him for this work that only He can do. You may ask, how will I know it? When will I know it? How how do I know it? When you will respond to the King's command and repent from your sin and turn to Christ only as the Savior of any sinner to save you from your sins. It is the only hope of salvation and the way to true life. What does it mean for us as believers, as members of Christ's body? For the believer, it's the difference between everything and nothing. It's the reality in our hearts between feast and famine, between fullness and emptiness, between heaven and hell. John Murray says in Redemption Accomplished and Applied, 
our union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. There is no truth, therefore, more suited to impart confidence and strength and comfort and joy in the Lord than this one union with Christ. And for us to grasp this deep yet simple fact of the union of Christ is to pour new light into the heart and a new power into the life of the believer. Why, why is this? Well, this union belongs to all believers. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Peter's telling us here that there are not any degrees of privileges or blessings or spirituality in the body of Christ. The issue is not, are you close to God and growing in fellowship and communion with God? We are by virtue of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. But are we living in the reality of it in such a way that it pleases us beyond all else? That Christ is my true delight above everything. Second thought, this union with Christ, our union with Christ speaks. It speaks of Christ's tender affections for you. Peter again says, he cares for you. We should not only cast our anxieties upon him, but he cares for us in each and every aspect of life, every circumstance, knowing our deepest true needs in all of our grieving, in all of our stumbling, in all of our falling, He is there caring intimately for us and is with us because we're in Him. And this union in Christ, thirdly, speaks to us of His affection for us. Not, not a casual affection, not a fair-weather friend, Christ is fervent and zealous and jealous in His affection for us. He cherishes us because we are members of His body. He nourishes us and cherishes us as His church, as His bride. Thomas Watson said, He who crowned the heavens with stars was crowned Himself with thorns. Why? For you and for me. Fourthly, this union is the means by which Christ communicates all of his graces to us. For we have been filled. We've been made complete. And finally, this union compels us to walk humbly with Christ. As he is our Lord, he is our King. To love deeply as we have so been loved. To obey sincerely from a pure heart and to do all we can to please the Father. Let's pray. Almighty God, what... No, I don't want to say incredible. It's credible. It's worthy. It's magnificent. The work, Father, you have done on our behalf a work that none of us could accomplish.
not by any means that we could conjure or even fathom or imagine. Beyond incomprehensible, but Father, you have made it real to us through Christ and by your Spirit. You have revealed it to us in your Word. So Lord, we humbly ask, oh God, I pray in power you would make this real to us to live in this, to flourish in this, to flourish in Christ. To truly know, if we don't know, don't quite understand what it means yet, to to really enjoy Him, Lord. To truly delight in Him. Help us to see this. Help us to understand this. Help us to experience this. Lord, these are not theories. These are not formulas. This is life. And life that you have brought to, to, to mere dust. That you have quickened that you have made alive again. Father, let us, let us grow in this and mature in this and Him to explore and experience the fullness that we have in Him. And oh God, to live, to make it known to a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name, amen.